when I was in my training, I remember a very busy night in which there was so much going on. There were people with heart attacks and strokes. And I remember this moment when a baby was brought in. Just a heartbreaking moment in the middle of the night. Maybe it was 2 a.m., 3 a.m., something. And we started resuscitating the baby, doing whatever we can. And it was just such a tornado of activity. And then there was this moment when it was like everybody, like we pressed pause and everything just went still. And it was like I moved into the center, the eye of a hurricane where it was just still. And then this came into my mind. We have no idea what health is. Hi, everybody. This is Mind the Shift, and I am Anders. I am thrilled to introduce you today to Anop Kumar, Dr. Anop Kumar. Welcome to the show, Anop. Thank you, Anders. Pleasure to be here with you. I hope I pronounced that your name correctly there. Anoop, yes. Anoop Kumar. Uh, so you are an MD. Uh, as far as I understand, you're an, you are an ER doctor. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. But from, from what, what I've heard about you and, and seen about you, I perceive you more like uh, some kind of a spiritual guide or at least a paradigm breaker. Would you agree with that? I prefer the latter, yes. Okay. Why, why is that? <laughs> I think the word spiritual is, is uh, it can be confusing, and I actually think today it's not necessary. I think if we can expand our understanding enough, the need for something called spirituality goes away, and the understanding about what that word actually meant all along becomes clear. Mm. That's good. I mean, that's really wisely put, I must say. Now, um, you. You seem to have found, anyway, I mean, uh, notwithstanding what you just said, you seem to have found ways to combine Western medicine with Eastern philosophy, um, if you will, found ways to bridge that gap, that centuries-old gap between science and spirituality. Um, and you have written books not only about healing and medicine. I think you've written one called Michelangelo's Medicine, is that right? Yes. And then, there. yeah, and then also this one that I just read myself called "Is This a Dream?" which is a, a brief book, but it's packed with wisdom, and it's about reflections on the awakening mind. So, I mean, that's that's <laughs> truly deep, and yeah. we're going to delve delve into those philosophical questions also, uh, hopefully, during this episode here. Um, but um, and and you've also found this uh, you founded this crossover i don't know how how to how to describe it but it's kind of a crossover medical enterprise or organization called health revolution how would you yes. describe it health revolution is simple our goal is to shift the state of society from disease to healing i think there's so much happening in our society today from just the fundamental narratives that we process about who we are, what we are, what we're doing here, about what we are capable of, about um, our constitution, body, mind, energy, etc. This is all baked into early childhood. Within the first one to two years, this is set. Your trajectory is set. And then school reinforces it. And it doesn't matter where in the world you are. It's pretty much uh, a materialist-focused paradigm, a physicalist-focused paradigm. 
And unless you're exposed to other things systematically that integrate all aspects of life, not just, oh, here's a philosophy, or not just here's an experience, but across education, health, you know, technology, business, government, politics, and of course, most importantly, our moment-to-moment -moment experience, until we realize that there is another way of seeing all this that is absolutely consistent, that is absolutely rational, that absolutely touches on all aspects, then we're kind of stuck in a state of dis-ease because all of this reinforces, I would say, a radically incomplete notion and experience of who we are and what we are capable of. So Health Revolution simply tells a better story that touches on all aspects of life and specifically starts with the idea that healing is possible, healing in every sense of the word. Yeah. So is it is it an organization or, or a, um, an enterprise, a company. a company? or? Yes, it's an enterprise, absolutely. Okay. So yes. yeah, I, I'll just tell the audience also, also for those who are listening and watching, uh, there will be a link in the description box uh, to... A course that you you give you you, you have courses that people can take and there yes. will be a discount also so yes yes just to say that uh, yeah. and um, you you talk about the uh, the healthcare truths that nobody talk talk about nobody yeah. talks about yeah which are those yeah. well there are many I would say number one is that what we are is fundamentally a body. You know, when you go to a hospital or you go to your doctor, nobody will say this to you. Nobody will write it down. You won't find it at any informed consent. You won't find it in any forms you sign. But the understanding of what we call modern medicine is that you can be adequately modeled as a physical thing. In fact, so adequately modeled, so well modeled as a physical thing that all the diagnoses and treatments we need to make will fit into that physical model. When you say it, it sounds insane, right? You know it's you know it's insane when you say it. Yeah, but it is unsaid. <laughs> yeah, it, it's unsaid, and it's 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 the dominant philosophy in medicine. I like to say that we physicians don't know we're philosophers. You know, we're taught philosophy. All of us are taught philosophy, but we never realized that we were taught philosophy about what a human being is constituted from. So that's one of them. Another one is we don't know what the mind is. But we talk about mental illness and mental health. You know, it's kind of insane. Mental is about mind, but the mind also is not the domain of biomedical science. Biomedical science studies, again, like I said, physicalist things, physical body, the brain. Mind is a vast, vast topic that is explored in encyclopedias in different cultures around the world, almost none of which is in a biomedical curriculum. So to talk about mental health and mental illness, I think right off the bat, we're going into an area where there is a high likelihood of harming people unintentionally. Uh, I'll give an example. So I'm in the ER, somebody comes in with a few symptoms, and I might say, look, done some tests, evaluated you, I think you have a kidney infection, you know, and that's what's going on. Now, what if they say to me, okay, thanks, Dr. Kumar. Now, just explain to me a little bit, uh, what is the kidney, you know? And what if I said, well, you know, I don't really know what the kidney is. Uh, it's, you know, we kind of have a feel for it. I mean, you know what it is, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not really part of my curriculum. And they say, okay, that sounds kind of nuts. But, you know, just tell me, where is the kidney at least? Just show me where it is. Well, I, I'm not exactly sure where it is. It's, it's kind of, 
you know, it would be insane that the patient should say, you know what? No, thank you. <laughs> let me, <laughs> let me go somewhere else. Mm. And yet that's what we're doing with mental illness. How can I say something is a mental illness if I don't know what the mind is, what the range of the mind is, what is possible with the mind, where the mind is, you see? Yeah. So this is another truth that, that is that we are kind of running around without looking at what the knowledge base is that we are using to speak. Mm. I would say these are the two main ones. Another big one is we don't know what health is, which sounds crazy when you call it healthcare, right? So in, in medical school, you study anatomy and physiology and biochemistry and so on. Pretty soon you get to pathology, pathophysiology, basically what is going wrong. And then most of a career continuing, med continuing medical education is then spent on disease processes, right? The question of what is health beyond a blood pressure and a heart rate and a respiratory rate and so on, right? Beyond just the cells doing what they're supposed to do. But what is health? What is this word heal that health comes from? What is this word whole that heal comes from? What is the potential of a human being? You know, this question, if we're not answering it, we cannot say that we are a healthcare system. We cannot. We have to be honest. So we don't know what health is. That's really important to understand. That struck me once when I was in my training. I remember a very busy night in which there was so much going on. There were people with heart attacks and strokes. And I remember this moment when a baby was brought in. Just a heartbreaking moment in the middle of the night. Maybe it was 2 a.m., 3 a.m., something. And we started resuscitating the baby, doing whatever we can. And it was just such a tornado of activity. And then there was this moment when it was like everybody, like we pressed pause and everything just went still. And it was like I moved into the center, the eye of a hurricane where it was just still. And then this came into my mind. We have no idea what health is. It was just crystal clear. It, like we're jumping from fire that. to fire to fire, but we don't know where we're going. So these are a few of the truths that we don't talk about. Profound truths there. I must say, and uh, yeah, fascinating. Uh, to go back a little bit to your background, just to, to understand why you have ended up where you've ended up, and and writing these books and and starting this health revolution thing and all that. As far as I understand, you had the opportunity to study the the Hindu school of uh, Advaita Vedanta already as a child. Yes, and uh, I mean, and then you decided to pursue a, a standard Western medical training. So tell us about how you were able to to combine these two worlds when you were young, younger? Yeah. I think probably when I was young, I didn't combine them, but uh, Advaita I was exposed to in elementary school and uh, my parents were very much into it. So I was sitting in all the adult classes and, and I was with the, the monks and the people who made it their life. You know, for them, it wasn't a subject of study. It was their life experiment. And it always seemed so so deep. And there was so much truth there to, ex to excavate, to experiment with, you know, to grapple with, to see, is this true? How could it be true? But does it apply in school? You know, that those kinds of feelings, even though they weren't conceptualized, that feeling was there, that internal process was there. And by contrast, when I got to school, I would hear these things that seemed so distant, so decontextualized, right? So 
I think a lot of kids ask, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to study this? They're very valid questions. You know, exactly. that's our yeah. responsibility as adults to say, wait a second, why are we not providing that bridge to take them from their own living live experience, which is so intimate and real to what we are talking about? That's, that's our blind spot. That's not their blind spot, you know? So I felt that. And then over time, uh, I realized that, okay, this one includes this one, but this one has no idea what this one is, you know? So that sense came about. And then eventually, I think by the time I got to medical school and then uh, training, I said, I can't, it, it was as if I was like holding my hand over my mouth and I said, I can't do it anymore. I need to just let it out. And then that's when you know, I started speaking about it. And before that, I did go through some rather intense processes where I was trying to integrate this and experimenting and do all those things because I found it very unsatisfactory to have two different things. I found it, I found it wasn't really true. So that's been my process. But you did finish your training. I mean, you didn't quit because you felt it was too superficial. I did. There was a there was a break around college where I think right around at the end of high school, I had had enough. I said, I cannot, I can no longer just study and regurgitate what other people have said, you know, other people have done, which I feel like is a lot of school, you know, even though I think they encourage more and more group work, creative work, et cetera. But so much of it is, what did that person before you say, right? And it's, it's not, do you think they're wrong or like, how are they wrong? Or how are they radically incomplete? It would be so much more exciting if, if I mean, if that was conveyed to the to the pupils, to the to the students that, hey, we don't know anything about this. We know too little. Yeah. It's up to you guys to find it out. Right. It would be so right. much more. I mean, they would be so much more enthusiastic about the the whole it thing. It would be, and I think I think part of that comes from a misconception that I think is given to us in society that we are now the most advanced we have ever been. Right. So we believe that we've learned from all the mistakes of all the people before us. And now we are so advanced. I don't think that's true. I think there were many civilizations that were more advanced than ours. And, and we go through a kind of rhythmic oh, cycle. That's a fascinating rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> to dive into yeah. that sometime. We won't do that today. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I understand that you had, you had a trans- transformative experience, a near death experience in med school as well. Is that, yes, is that right? Yes. Yes, I've been told it's called a near-death-like experience or an STE, all, all kinds of terms for it. But essentially, uh, it's when I was home uh, reading in my room, and uh, essentially, an explosion happened is the way I can describe it. Uh, it felt like uh, everything fell away, and it felt like I was sitting in the sun. And it's a phrase that I never would have used before, um, but it's the only phrase that seems appropriate. Um, bright orange blaze, you know, beauty, peace, and timelessness. Yeah, at some point, uh, there was kind of a choice as to go beyond that and not return, or to stay. And I paused for a moment, and in pausing, everything kind of came back, everything re-imploded. And then the body was there again, that same mind, well, not the same mind, but some kind of mind came back and the room and all those things. And yet, you know, the perception had shifted, the sense of identity had shifted, a lot of things shifted there. And then it took 
took many, many years to integrate that, uh, which, which is still happening today. Wow. Yeah, that's super fascinating. But what, what did that uh, do to you at that time? When, what, how did that affect your, your life? You were in med school still and uh, yes. right, to pursue your Fortunately, studies. it was more, I think, towards the end of medical school. Like most of the rigor <laughs> had passed. I think I, I, otherwise I probably would have had a difficult time. So I kind of already learned the majority of it, knew what I wanted. So the mind could kind of rest, I guess, for a little bit while there was this developmental process happening within. Um, and I describe it a little bit like learning to walk again, um, uh, where the way of thinking had changed as opposed to thinking from concept to concept. Um, it, it was just start where it needs to start and then go to wherever it needs to go next, and then use the concepts we have learned to create the bridge in between, rather than use the concepts to go to the next place. That's, that was a big shift that I noticed in the way thinking happened. The amount kind of, of thinking- instant, instant download of some kind that you just got there. I think what happened is the mind opened up to beyond the individual identity. And I think this is the case for all of us. All of us live at multiple levels. And through societal conditioning, we get restricted to a particular channel of knowledge, a particular channel of identity. Um, and so in that case, that, that the walls of that channel fell off so that, let's say, other channels, other views were also available. Yeah. Well, I want to ask more about those things. But before we leave the, the medical part of it i mean it's it, it all goes together so <laughs> there are no borders here but anyway you mentioned mental illness already that we don't really know what the, what the mind is but we talk about mental illness how, how do you how do you look upon that because i've heard you compare or at least superimpose psychosis uh on spiritual awakening experiences and that might may sound a bit controversial to some people can you explain what yeah. you what you mean yeah so there is literature about this already that some people compare what is called psychosis and what is called spiritual awakening. And then they, they demarcate, well, this is actually psychosis. This is actual spiritual awakening. I don't really believe that. First of all, I, I don't really believe in spirituality per se to begin with. Like, I don't believe that there is something called spirituality. I think, uh, you know, we've created, for example, science, spirituality, and that's like same as West and East, that's same as body and mind, that's same as physicalism and idealism or Advaita, you know, we have a lot of uh, inventions uh, that really represent our ignorance. What we're really talking about when we talk these categories is actually the line in between. That's actually the focus, but we don't name it, right? We call it this, 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 but why are there so many such dichotomies? Well, because of the boundary. The boundary is really the star of the show. And it's the boundary unnamed. is the thing. The boundary is, yeah. is reality. The boundary is the thing. So and that boundary is the sense of identity. So by recognizing that what we're talking about is a sense of identity, and as the sense of identity becomes subtle and translucent, then there is no such thing as science and spirituality. Science approaches the objective and tries to minimize the subjective. Why? Because it doesn't understand the range of the subjective. It doesn't understand that the subjective can, can encompass what we call the objective. Spirituality came about because we said, 
we can't just look at the world out there and hope to understand this because it is actually our body. The world is actually our body, but it's not recognized. So we keep looking at, let's say, the pinky, and I keep looking at the pinky to understand myself until I realize that the pinky is a part of me and I create the bridge between me and pinky. Then I can understand the entirety of what the pinky is, its function, its importance, what else is part of it. I can understand myself. Similarly, spirituality said, if you just look at the world out there, you'll never realize what it really is. And so it says, leave that out, go within, meditate, mindfulness, etc. Not because it actually says to shun the world, but it's actually a technique. And once that circle becomes complete, once we go within and it expands to include the outside, then you, look, you can look at science and you say, well, okay, I see science is coming to the inside through quantum science which is actually a reflection of the quantizing of identity. So then there's no difference between science and spirituality. So because of that, um, getting back to your question about mental health and mental illness, I think what we have to realize is that mind itself is so much more than what we think it is. In fact, we're not even clear on what it is to begin with. So if we're going to say mental illness, mental health, I say, give me a definition of mind that you're using. Because then we can start with what that definition reveals about what we understand and what we don't understand. What is often called psychosis, this is probably a, a one or two hour conversation in itself, so we can't possibly cover it all unless you want to spend the whole time on this. But what is oftentimes called psychosis, what for me could have been called psychosis, I mean, I could right now be called psychotic also. The only difference is I created an entire framework to communicate so that people would understand me rather than be scared of what I'm saying, you know, and, and that fear becomes, plays a big part into how people label things. What is often called psychosis is one, it could be a displaying of the powers of the mind and a revealing of what this world is. You know, essentially from a second mind view, which we can get into at some point yeah, from the three cool. minds framework, from a second mind view, the world is essentially distilled consciousness. The world is comprised of thought forms is another way we can say it. And if that is true, it's a hypothesis to experiment with. But if that's true, that tells us that the mind is something much more powerful than we think. If that is true, then what we call a hallucination may not be fundamentally different than your body that I'm looking at now or the hand that we are seeing in front of us now. And in fact, if you look at uh, neuroscientists today, they will say the world is essentially a hallucination, a collective hallucination, but nevertheless, a, halluc a kind of hallucination. That the brain is not necessarily seeing what is there, but it is also constructing what is here and interpreting what is here. So right off the bat, that loosens our understanding of psychosis. It says, wait a second, if that is simply harnessing abilities of the mind that we all are, but seeing it in a different way, now the question is, why is it seeing it in this way? Rather than saying it's doing something wrong, it's not doing something wrong at all. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do and always for good reason. It's doing what it's doing for good reason. Now we have to become curious and say, why is it doing that? Ah, because this experience, maybe it, creates some sense of fear or a threat, and therefore there has to be some other kind of interpretation or perceptual interpretation, what we call hallucination, 
that that demonstrates that that plays that role you know there're good reasons for why this happens another thing you can see in what we call psychosis is that psychosis in one culture maybe enlightenment in another culture yeah yeah right so that's I mean, another I, i've been thinking about indigenous cultures for instance i mean they 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 don't deem people crazy that have psychosis or or are or, or like we call mental mentally ill they are almost seen as potential shamans absolutely absolutely i know some of the people i grew up with that were so respected if you decontextualize them took away their clothes the you know the, the orange robe that they're wearing and and put them into a college program at their age you know let's say they're in their 20s or 30s or and they put them in the workforce they would quickly be seen as there's something wrong with this person and if nobody understood them they would be taken to the doctor's office and likely medicated right no doubt about it i for myself when i was going through an intense period of change i fortunately had two lenses that most people probably don't have i had the doctor lens to see how does the biomedical view see my experience and i had the the lens of of adaita and of the experience of many people who had been through this who were saying the they were saying perfect this is amazing you know keep going this is the best thing that could happen to you right whereas the other thing would say this is crazy like this doesn't make sense this is not good so you know it, it's a a perspective is so important now a key part whenever we talk about this we have to acknowledge suffering and we have to acknowledge the inability to function in one's life so we're not minimizing suffering we're not saying that oh this is actually a good thing no in some cases it can be reframed that way some cases just plain suffering i also suffered a great deal during that process of like almost metamorphosizing it felt like you know and so the old world doesn't make sense anymore you know and the new world has no language so you know what are you doing you're 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 speaking in poetry you're speaking in, in using words in ways that still like don't have meaning to other people and such and so that that can be there can be a great deal of suffering in that so i think it's important to acknowledge all this and i think when we start to see all this i think we can start to use a new language that goes beyond mental illness and even mental health which i think is just an entree to mental illness the the kind of framing and marketing of it i think what we need to talk about is ease meaning relevance function desire relationship this is the language that we need this is the language of healing and this is what allows more and more understanding to come into our lives. Yeah, that sounds really wonderful. Beautiful. Uh yeah, I wish doctors would say those things when you go to the the local hospital with some ailment. Speaking of which, uh what about physical ailments, physical problems uh, and our our self-healing ability? I assume that you would say that it's much much greater than we are led to believe. Yes. So Tell us a little bit, for instance, about what is often called placebo and nocebo. Placebo and yeah. nocebo. I think that those are fascinating concepts, uh, and and I think that they're really understudied in in Western medicine. I mean, everybody knows that they're there, but it's like Western medicine doesn't really pay any attention to it, which it yeah. should because it's big. It's I mean, every you know, 
study that is made that, that there is so there's such a large placebo effect in every new med- new yeah. medication that is that is tried yeah. out. Yeah, I mean the funny thing is that it's so big, it's in every study. Every yeah. study has to account for the placebo effect. And yet we account for it in a way that minimizes it and hides it as if it's not. I know. It's like, oh, it's just the placebo effect. I mean, I think it's 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 huge. It's yeah. what do you mean just the Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's everything, actually. I think it's everything. Um so yeah, the placebo effect is essentially when it, a person feels that they will get better, or they think or they believe that they will get better. And by virtue of that, they do. So a classic example is what we call a sugar pill, right? So we think that a certain antibiotic will kill a bacteria that is causing an infection. And so you give some people that antibiotic, but if you give some other people a so-called sugar pill or a pill that is inert, that, that apparently has no active action against that bacteria, just the act of getting a pill from somebody in a white coat who cares about them to whom they they pay a bill because it's it's valued you know just this this ceremony that happens itself can create healing in this person can help the person get better right and we can see it even in, in physical conditions i believe there was a study um, for people who had joint pain i believe it was knee pain and some of them had actual arthroscopy where you make an incision in the knee and you go in look in and clean it out and others had sham arthroscopy where it was blinded. They didn't know. They still had an incision, but nothing went in, nothing cleaned anything out. And the people did just as well. I can email you that. Um, so even when you call like, and something you would consider so quote unquote physical as the bone and the knee, you know, no mind, <laughs> no mind there. Um, even in these kinds of cases, we can see the power of that placebo effect. And vice versa is the nocebo effect. Right when when we say that you know nothing is possible or healing is not possible, if you say that, then many people actually believe that. And a good example of that, which is rampant, is what we call prognosis in medicine today. One of the things I realized in doing the Healing Is Possible podcast, where we interview people who have healed from all kinds of conditions, including apparently or supposedly incurable conditions, what I realized is that our prognoses are just plain wrong. In so many cases. Why? Because we're not accounting for these stories of healing. Many of these people who healed said, I asked my doctor to write it up, but they wouldn't write it up in the medical journal. Very few of these cases are written up in medical journals. And so when you don't write them up, what can you do? You can say, well, that was a miracle, or well, that was a one off thing, or well, that rarely happens. Or or the the big one is, well, that's just an anecdote. That's just anecdotal. As if, I mean, we live on stories. Yeah, yeah, stories yeah. Oh, are, they're, they're, they're just two million anecdotes. Okay. Yeah, right, right. But but we don't know that they're two million or they're not documented because, no, because they're not they're printed not in the medical journals. And so what's happening is that that denominator of what can happen is is so small. We're not accounting, we're not expanding to all the cases of people who are actually healing in that numerator, right? So what is the percentage of healing? It goes down and down and down and down. And so what we're doing with in making a prognosis is essentially essentially pronouncing a nocebo effect. We're activating a nocebo effect by saying, well, only 20% actually heal from this, or only 1%, or only 70% even, whereas actually it might be 30% or more, 40, 50, 80, who knows, right? So that's the placebo and the nocebo effect. Now, 
what does that suggest? This gets into maybe like the overall theme of this conversation. This suggests that the line between the mind and the body is not so concrete, right? This gets back to East, West, mind, body, spirituality, science, right? Everybody wants to name the sides, but nobody will name the line, right? That is the line of identity. It is when I take myself to be something, when I identify as something, I create a division between that something and the rest of the world. Okay, so when I take myself primarily as a body, either through direct experience or through repeated ramming a concept in my head, then I create something called body and I create something called mind. Right? Why? Only because I identified as body. Right? I create a world out there and then myself here. Why? Because I was taught to identify strictly as personality. Because when I was a child, perhaps the parents would say, This is your nose, this is your mouth, this is your hand, this is your knee. And so, where was our attention getting focused all the time? And then when we would name nose, they would say, Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And so this attention gets narrowed, narrowed. You know, a, a baby would just crawl straight off the edge of a table. It has not yet identified as that body. I'm not saying we should live like that. I, I'm not saying that's the other option. But there is a third way other than that or just identifying as a body, right? If parents would say, oh, I see, I see, Anders. This is ease. This, this what we're feeling, this is space. This is openness. Every child would understand this. Every child would, but most adults don't understand it, so they don't speak that way. You know? And if we did that, then a child's identity would not get constricted. And then we would not have something called spirituality in this world, mm. you know, because they would just be living that openness. Yeah. So, I mean, the, these are the different ways that we have to look at this. As we start looking at this boundary, as we start experimenting with our own identity, then we will go past these dichotomies. Yeah. So now we're we're touching on the philosophical questions. So let's delve delve into those a little bit. Then uh, you what you just mentioned here sounds a bit like those people who call themselves idealists and who are talking about uh, consciousness being primary. You know, matter is secondary. Consciousness is primary, and and that. Some people say that, I mean, of course, there there are different philosophical roads to go here. Some some are what is called um, panpsychists, and they say that everything is conscious. But I, I, I as far as I understand, the those who who say that they're idealists, and and that I, I think touches on uh, is close to Advaita Vedanta and 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 other philosophies as well. They say that uh, everything is in consciousness. So there is one. There is a. There is a. There is an overarching arching uh, consciousness, and and everything is in that. So, and and you have already mentioned the three minds framework. So, talk a little bit about that. How do you define those those three levels of of mind, and and how do you define consciousness, and and what it is? It's it's a huge question, I know, but I, yes. I know that you can yeah, take yeah. it. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a huge question. So, for the purposes. Let me talk about why the Three Minds Framework came about. It came about simply because after that change that happened, that is happening still, 
with the sense of identity, with the personality, with the mind, with the body. So then there's a need to communicate this. So I had a choice to basically like leave society and just be on my own, do something, or to stay in society. But if I were to do that, I had to honor what I saw and what I was experiencing. And, you know, the, the first one was never really an option to leave society that never really called to me. Well, it never, it never really was viable for me. So then the question is, okay, I'm here. How do I communicate this? Right. And so out of that, that deep necessity, as they say, necessity is a mother of invention, um, to stay true to this experience and out of the feeling that this was tremendously important to communicate came this three minds framework. And especially I wanted some kind of framework that I felt could appeal to scientific people, philosophical people, spiritual people, you know, like very practical everyday people. And I, and I wanted a framework that could be applied to any subject or sector. So that's how this came about. And what my experience was, was relatively simple. And it is simply that as a person's identity is, so the world is experienced and interpreted. And that's at the root of the whole thing. And so if we're going to speak about it in philosophical terms, what that means is that consciousness is fundamental. And in a sense that everything is consciousness, not just that everything is in consciousness, everything is consciousness and consciousness is everything. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no bodies, no minds, no personalities. It doesn't mean that this is all just a dream and it doesn't matter. There's so many misconceptions associated with this, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we can't work with the body or it doesn't mean that modern medicine is useless. None of this is true. What we're saying is that at deeper levels of reality, you know, as we go deeper in that ocean, like bloop, 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 then at the deepest levels, there is a radiant non-duality. And that the nature of this, the best word we have in English that I have, I'm aware of is consciousness. It's not my consciousness or your consciousness, not somebody's consciousness. It's not the same as being awake. It's not the same as, as being conscious of something, right? These are all ripples of consciousness, right? This is the kind of consciousness I talk about in the ER. We call it LOC, loss of consciousness, if somebody passes out, right? Or we talk about levels of consciousness in sedation. We talk about lethargy, optundation, stupor, coma, right? These are levels of consciousness. But consciousness proper, prior to modification, is what we're talking about. And we're saying that that is fundamental. And that is what we are. That is what everything is. It's not unique to human beings. That is what everything is at the level of the substratum. Mm. Is and, that the base reality, would you call it? Yes, we can call it a base reality. And, and that's depending the third, on the third third level mind, or I'm I'm yes, getting ahead of, ahead of you here. Third, second, and first, but it's seen and interpreted differently okay. at each level. Yes, so it doesn't change based on the identity, but the view of what it is, the understanding of what it is, the experience of what it is changes depending on the sense of identity. 
So given that as a foundation, the first mind view is the view that what I am, I, the sense I, right? Notice that everybody in the world is named I. It might be in their own language or whatever, but we all call ourselves I, right? We all have the same name. That's a hint. So what is this I? This I, when it's taken to be a local phenomenon, meaning that I am this body, or I am this personality, or I am in this physical space, that sense of localizing boundary that defines the sense of I is the first mind condition. And when one is identified as the first mind condition, what one sees naturally is a world of boundaries. Okay, why? Because I've taken myself as a boundary. Very simple. As we are, we see, right? We all know that's true. Like if, if I'm upset and angry, then I might identify or see more upset and angry people, right? We, we know that reflection is there. But what we don't know is that that extends throughout what we call even the physical world. So as I take myself to be a localized thing, I see a world of localized things. And this is the dominant culture in the world today. So I look out, I see a camera, I can see uh, one of your eyes, the other eye, your ear, I can see the light behind me, I can see the carpet, I can see the ceiling, I see the tree outside. Multiplicity, 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 multiplicity. How is multiplicity defined? Multiplicity is defined by boundary, right? And the example I always give is this. So you can see there's one hand. Well, no, I'm going to draw a few boundaries. Actually, there are five fingers and there's a hand here. Well, actually, I'm going to use this, maybe this line I'm going to use as a boundary and say, here's four-fifths of the hand, here's one-fifth of the hand up here. Yeah. So yeah. wherever I want to draw a boundary, I create multiplicity, right? And how is the hand itself defined, by the way? There is a boundary here, too, around the whole thing. And if this boundary were not there, there would be no way for anybody to say there's a hand here. It is the boundary that defines the hand. Take away the boundary, the hand disappears. It, it morphs into everything else well it's sufficient to just sit down and meditate for a while and, and just kind of feel the body in general you don't feel a separate i mean you can feel a separate you, you can exactly. decide you can focus on one finger or whatever but i mean the general feeling is just you know being there as a body or uh, anyway <laughs> so exactly exactly i mean so when the eyes are closed the number of boundaries decrease decrease right? radically right exactly. and and initially in meditation of course the thoughts might increase so you get a lot of thought boundaries one thought by Eventually, that dies down as well. And eventually, what you're doing is kind of going deeper into the nature of what is here. And so the question is, that experience that you just mentioned, which is such a, such, a, such a palpable experience that people have, the question is, what is it suggesting? And that's what I'm trying to communicate through this framework. Now, science today is first mind science, right? Because it says, I am here. I see that over there, and I want to know what that is. I need to minimize myself, which we call bias. Our sense of identity and perception is called bias in science. I need to minimize myself, and I need to know what that is. Let me study that as much as possible. This is the approach. And what happens is you hit a wall, which is what quantum science has found. You hit a wall in which the one who is observing seems to be having some effect on this thing that is out there. This particle that is out there that I thought was totally independent of me, I can minimize myself and know what it is. It seems to be affected by how I'm looking at it, right? What is this telling us? This boundary is 
not concrete. East-West spirituality, science, etc. It's not a concrete boundary. It is. It it shifts and moves depending on what we are aware of, how we build our instruments to even detect things. So, if this is the first mind condition, what is the second mind condition? The second mind condition is simply when the sense of identity is no longer localized to one particular thing, whether it's my personality, my body, my view, or so on. And the sense of the shift from the first to the second mind is experienced as expansion and eventually as as a non-localization, we can say, of the identity in which the second mind condition, the mind is the fabric of space and time in which all experiences are experienced in all dimensions. So in the second mind, the experience is that this I, this, this I that we are all named, is actually not mapping to a body or a particular personality or a particular set of beliefs, but what it maps to is an infinite field of potential that I'm calling consciousness, non-local consciousness. And what we call as the world of multiplicity are waves of experience in this ocean of consciousness. And so what looks to be fixed and concrete through first mind perception is always possibility and creativity in second mind perception. Even something like a brick, which looks dead and 90 degree angles and hard and so certain, right? Even this, even from the first mind view, when we zoom in, we know that it's teeming with atoms, right? That are vibrating in all kinds of ways. Even the first mind view, we can recognize this. And as we start shift into shifting into a quantum view, we know that even those atoms are actually interfacing fields of energy that are infinite, right? And they interface and it, through human perception at the first mind perceptual level, we interpret it as atom or molecule or brick. So the second mind view is simply the experience of one's identity non-localizing or associating this first mind condition is a dissociated state it's key to key to understand so we are reassociating with the full identity and in so doing we see the deeper nature of the world that even that which we imagine that is physical is perhaps more accurately described as mental mm-hmm. now the, the definition of mental changes from the first mind view but it's it's more accurate to say these are mental experiences that are representative of our culture and who we are than to say they are externalized physical things that are totally independent of us. Sounds quite a bit like idealism and also like hermeticism, actually. Okay, I don't know much about hermeticism. First principle is um, the universe is mental. And then there are some others. (laughs) There it is. Now, I would say that the universe is mental is is the experience and interpretation from the first mind perspective. From the second mind into the third mind perspective, it is consciousness and consciousness alone. In the sense that uh, as the fluctuations and interpretations die down, at that point, what we're talking about is the fundamental substratum of consciousness. To me, it doesn't matter. We can say consciousness, we can say mind. In fact, you know, I think that a person can even say the world is entirely physical. There's no such thing as mind. And they can actually mean the same thing. It, that, it just depends cool. on, yeah, it actually depends on how they use language. Because I heard 
You know, one time I was in a conversation with a scientist and we were talking, I was talking about space. I was talking about objects in space. And I said, you know, the object is physical, um, but that object is situated in space. It's defined by space. It's occupying space. And is that space fundamentally different? We have virtual spaces. We have mental space. We have physical space. Are these spaces fundamentally different, right? That physical and that mental, don't they go together? Isn't that telling us that the physical thing that we call a brick is not something fundamentally different? And what this person said is that, well, actually space is physical too, you know? I said, okay, well, if you're going to call space physical, then we can get somewhere. I'm okay with that. Certainly a brick is less subtle than space. I think most people would agree with that. I would say drastically less subtle. If you drop a brick on your foot, on your toe, you can break it. (laughs) If you drop space on your foot, it will feel good. You know, there's there's nothing that happens. So there's definitely a marked difference in our experience of space and let's say a brick. Um, But if we want to use the word physical for space, you want to extend that to mind, you want to extend that to consciousness, no problem. So at some point it becomes part of looking beyond language. Yeah. Interestingly, when you, uh, I mean, you you spoke about um, science wanting to come away from, get away from bias by by studying some other objects that is perceived to be away from you. But when you do that intensely, I mean, everybody has, or most people have, have experienced flow, being in the flow. It could be in sports or in when you do uh, an intense kind of work or or you 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 do your hobby or whatever you you know everybody or most people know what i talk about when i when i'm talk about flow and when you're in flow you're actually as far as i experience it it's like you are actually less biased because you are not you're you're really not in your body you're there you're in that particular object or whatever it is you're working with totally you don't even notice that you have a body. You don't even notice that you exist as as such, as an individual. You're just there. I mean, it's almost, I mean, I wouldn't say that this conversation is as intense as when you have flow, when you're doing your uh, an intense work or something. But it's a little bit like that right now that I'm, I'm talking to you, I'm listening intensely to you. It's like I disappear. So, I mean, that thing that, the, the the idea that that you're less biased when you try to focus on something something else is is actually flawed i think because i i mean i can sometimes almost experience myself as being everything but what is in this body it's it's, it's everything else that is quote unquote me or i because yes. that's yes. the only thing that is that i can experience i can't experience yes. much of what's happening in here really <laughs> yes a few things yeah but- it's a, it's a shift from i am in the body to the body is in me yeah, it's something like that. that yeah. Shift in identity that happens. And whenever we focus on anything, I mean, this is just the technology of nature and the wisdom of nature and the power of nature. Whenever something we focus on intensely enough, that attention point will increase and start to include everything. And that's how we got from classical mechanics and classical science to quantum science, because we were so fanatical about studying that thing that eventually it revealed to us that that thing is not just that thing, but it is in a sense, all things. And that's the same thing spirituality does go in here and with such intensity, such focus that eventually nature does its thing either way. It doesn't matter where you start. It's going to show us what's true. How would you define the brain? What is it? It's an experience. Okay. Yeah. It's is it a filter, or did, would you 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 don't want to use labels like that, or 
Which, sorry, I didn't hear you said. Is it a filter of some kind or a? It can be, yeah. So some people talk about it as a as a filter of consciousness that uh, consciousness is somehow kind of reduced through or, or certain frequencies we can say is allowed through to experience. I think that's that's a pretty good metaphor to help understand it. As long as we understand that the brain itself is also consciousness. It's not that there's consciousness in the brain. But it doesn't produce consciousness, which is what is the Western view. Right, right. So the idea is that the brain produces consciousness, which I think is utterly false. Um, the, the brain itself is a pattern in consciousness, right? What we call human beings, we're certain, certain patterns, tendencies, flows of consciousness. Just like you have air outside, and then you have a breeze. A breeze takes a path, and it can carry a leaf. A breeze is not different from air. It's a particular kind of air doing a particular thing. So human beings are a kind of consciousness that are functioning a certain way. And when those things take a form, just like if a breeze blows, you can say it's a gentle breeze or it's a strong breeze or it's an east-west breeze, right? So similarly, when consciousness takes on certain patterns, we give names to that, like human being or brain. Right, So a brain, what we call a brain, is a way that consciousness is processed in the frame of locality. Right, So as consciousness is processed and being experienced locally, what we call a brain comes into view. And as long as the brain is used, there's a certain view. Right, When the brain is set aside, then it's a different kind of view. Right? The idea that consciousness stops when the brain stops is, is ridiculous, frankly, because the brain itself is a pattern of consciousness. It's, it has no capacity to produce consciousness. It can simply shift the lens of itself. It's something like... It's something like if you had... If you, have, if you drop a pebble into a lake, and you have these concentric rings of water that move out. One concentric, concentric ring has the force to push out and create the next one, right? And it, and it keeps on going like this. But is there any ring, actually? There's only water. Yeah. Well, it's there's like the activity of water. The analogy of, of us being in the, in, in the, the ocean, the ocean is consciousness, and, and we are the waves. Of the, we are yes. still water. That's exactly right. So... The brain is like one of those rings that gives us a certain view within that ring, and it can create some, something outside of that. But it's not the lake. And if that ring stops, the lake still exists 100% at its full capacity, even if the ring stops. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> I like it. I agree. I think, I think you're right. And I mean, many people have, pro when they have mental problems or or when they're unhappy or depressed or, or whatever, it's often about thinking about the future and thinking about the past, you know, having a backpack of memories or, or they're laden with worries about what's going to happen next week or next year when they're going to meet that person to do this or that. And many people in the so-called spiritual realm, you, you might not want to call it that, but anyway, you know, Eckhart Tolle and, and people like that, yeah. they are often often pointing to the importance of being in the now moment. And, and I agree with that. but then you can always discuss how to, to what extent, because to some extent, I guess you have some use of some kinds of memories, for instance. So how do you yeah. see memories? What are they? Are they 
firstly, are they produced in the brain? Or if not, where are they? And, and to, to what use are they? What kind of memories are good and what kind of memories should we maybe discard or just don't think about? The brain to me is almost like an indicator. It's like an indicator board so of identity. So as long as that brain is functioning, it's a, it's a symbol that there's some association with the local perspective, right? So when the brain stops and the body stops, what we call death, memories are still there because the memories are not from the brain. They simply occur in processing with the brain as long as there is identification also with a local perspective that we call the body or personality. Right? So, the, so the brain is associated with memories, but it is not, it is not uh, the possessor of memories. Even if we can uh, draw an attachment between a location in the brain and certain memories, that simply means that that's the access point. It doesn't mean that the actual storage is right there. So, and what was the other thing you had asked? Well, you are you in about? your work, for instance, in health revolution, emphasizing the importance when you when you have uh, clients uh, emphasizing the importance of of being in, in the now and not, not oh, right. in thinking the now. too much about about memories or or should they should should people process them and then uh, just um, continue their life yeah. or or should they just forget about them? I I mean, what's the best? So you had asked about suggestion. about memories earlier, so. What we talk about is time, past, present, future, or memories. These are simply uh, less vivid experiences. Okay, everybody is in the now. Everybody is in the now. Everybody is only in the now. And you could even say there is only the now. There's some statements I don't like to make. Like I don't like to say there is only consciousness because it's so easily misinterpreted. You know, even if I'm going there, I, I don't like to say that because there's too much explanation. I think to make it understood. I don't like to say there is only now, you know, because it can, I think it doesn't necessarily give the meaning. So, but what I say, what I would say is that everybody is in the now, the so-called now. Nobody's outside the now. Um, because it's not possible is, to be anywhere else. It's not possible to be anywhere else. What is here is here. It's a very simple. But what can happen is that we create narratives in this now, and we create a narrative of past, present, and future. And what that narrative maps to in experience is vividness of experience, right? So the less vivid something is, we're going to say it's either past or future. The more vivid something is, we call it the present, right? So everybody right now is in the present. Why? If you're hearing this, you're in the present. Why? Because the attention is here. This is the most vivid experience, right? Now something might kind of start to fade into vividness and be like, ah, yes, there was a memory of this. This was in the past. But actually, everything is simultaneous. Yeah. It's only a matter of where attention is directed. If you direct attention to something that we call a memory in the so-called past, it will become vivid and you will start to live it. Your heart rate will change. Your pupillary constriction will change. And this is the whole principle behind therapy, right? Behind, behind let's say, desensitization therapy or even uh, uh, addressing things that have happened, quote unquote, in the past. What is that something that was in the past? It's something that's extremely vivid, that's not available to some of our perceptual sense, but is still living outside our vision. So we bring that into our vision. We make it the present. What was previously the present now becomes the past, right? Because it's less vivid. And now we can engage it and we can work with it and we can, we can see it, we can understand it. And in that sense, we can dissipate its 
its hold on the sense of personality and its dictates on the sense of personality. And then we can gradually allow that to dissipate. This experience comes back. Now, this is the present. The other thing is now the past. And so this is how we kind of uh, sense our way in the now, creating the narrative of time. Yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I tend to want to discard the past as much as possible, but I guess that's not very wise. <laughs> you have to, it's, it's, I think you have it's to work with some memories sometimes, yeah. Yeah, it's important because um, something can be not vivid just because it's also very painful. Yeah. So just because it's not vivid uh, to one sense, to the visual sense, for example, which is what we what kind of tends to dominate, just because it's not available to the visual sense doesn't mean it's not actively working on us, right? And this is this even goes beyond a lifetime to lifetimes. So it's it's not just about whether it's vivid now. The also the question is also why is it not vivid? Right, and if I make it vivid, am I okay with that? And can I reconcile that with other ranges of vividness, right? Which we call the different, let's say, phases of life. Now, I want to address one more thing, which you said, which is like, what do we do with health revolution? Do we say that we have to address this? So, you know, we're talking right now at a, at a pretty profound level about the nature of reality, about the nature of health, healing, and one of the huge things for me about health revolution is the word scale. This has to scale. This has to reach billions of people, right? I'm not interested in just doing something. There's so many people doing so many good things. For me, scale is key, right? So one does not have to appreciate or question the nature of space and time and identity and consciousness. Not necessary. It's simply looking at nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. These are the four engines that drive health, healing, insight, you know, curing disease, uh, acute disease, chronic disease, prevention, wellness, spiritual insight, enlightenment. It's a meta map across everything. And so much marketing that says it's prevention, no, it's just wellness. No, it's literally everything. And as a person starts on this path, wherever you are, there is a step to take. That's what the Health Jumpstart course is about. It meets everybody where they are. You can see nutrition at many levels, right? I always say nutrition of the mind is number one, and that's what we're doing now, nutrition of the mind. Uh, movement of the mind or the body. Connection, so many levels. Rest, so many levels. So at Health Revolution, the approach we take is wherever you are, there is a step to take, and that is available. So the four are nutrition. Nutrition. Movement. Movement. Connection. Connection. And, and rest. Rest. Yes. The last one and is also important, of course. Yeah. What we like to say is that no matter who has healed from anything in human history, they have done one or more of these four. It doesn't matter what culture, what system, absence of a system, it doesn't matter. You will see that these are the four engines. When activated, good things happen in people's lives. Beautiful. Is it fair to say that we all have a unique uh, perspective on on the world, on the universe, on life, but, I mean, on reality, let's put it that way, but there is what might be called a consensus reality that we all think we share, because, I mean, we all perceive that there are things in this room, for instance, that look more or less the same, albeit we, we look at it from different angles, because we can't be exactly, <laughs> have the, exactly the same angle, but... There is a consensus reality that makes us believe that there is an objective reality out there, which is act, which it actually never is. 
Is would that be a fair statement? Well, I think the subjective and the objective always go together. Um, so I, I would say that's I would say that's pretty close in the way I would say it. I think about it in terms of the cells in your body. Each cell has its own perspective, its local environment, right? Its cell membrane is feeling out its immediate environment. At the same time, it's connected to the whole organism. It's not functioning independently of the whole organism. The pH in the blood is everywhere, for example, right? The electrolytes in the blood are everywhere. So it's it, it's it's an individual, but it's also part of a collective. It has different levels of identity. So similarly, we have our own perspective from the first mind. From the first mind perspective, I'm looking locally at multiplicity. And so I have an immediate environment that I am responding to. There's also an I that we all share. We are all this I as the second mind, which is the totality. And at that level, it's a different kind of perception that's happening. From the second mind perspective, yes, it's all of the nature of what I am, not I Anup, but I as consciousness that we all are. It is that nature that is expressing. From the first mind level, it's the other perspective. So it's a, it's a dance. And it's where does a sense of identity want to live? These four engines, by the way, also mother is a necessity of invention, just like the three minds framework. These came about because I needed some stability also. First mind wasn't working, but you know, proper second mind moving into the third mind is not, there's a point where it becomes non-functional in the world. Uh, and so how do you keep somewhere in that second mind range, but you can still access language? You know, you can still uh, meet your people, your keep your relationships going and all those things. How do you do that? It's kind of where you Attrition ended up, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. you you were in the second mind framework, but you still, you had access to the first mind all, all along, so to speak. Yes. So, so we're all in the second mind. We're all expressions of the second mind. And that first mind for that individual mind started to loosen up. So it became more, uh, it became porous and translucent so that it, it's almost like the walls are glass now. So it can see through that. Now, how do you keep that balance? Because all of society or most of society it's geared towards balancing as the first mind, right? And that includes the food, that includes the thoughts, the narratives, the medications, the behaviors, the career paths, your goals, all those things. If you follow the society, it creates a first mind kind of situation. So if one wants to balance more as a second mind, what are the activities to support that? And through trial and error, I arrived at the four engines of nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. Fantastic. So I was going to ask about, I mean, this is a good segue over to my next question when you talk about society and the, the narratives that we are led to, to believe or follow. Uh, so, I mean, this the, the fact that we have, we all have different perspectives, but I mean, uh, from the second mind level, it's, it's all one. <laughs> uh, or in the, even, even more in the third, from the third mind uh, perspective. But what does it entail for our percep perception of truth? Is it, is it meaningful? I don't know if you want to answer this question, but it's because it's not your field, perhaps. But anyway, I can ask you: what, what does, Is it meaningful to to like fiercely fight for what one believes is truth, quote unquote? I guess it depends on what one maps this understanding or, or word truth to, right? So it can certainly be helpful if, if, for example, I'm holding a truth which is that healing is possible. Right? Or I'm holding a truth 
that uh, we fundamentally have infinite potential. These are two truths that I hold up that are part of the mission of health revolution. I think it's helpful to have that. It, it, creates, uh, it creates a certain velocity in consciousness, right? It creates a directionality to our expression by holding these truths. Now, it depends at what expense, you know, and when you say fight for these truths, what is the kind of fight that we are doing? Is it, is it actually helping us evolve towards these truths or experience these truths, or is it subtracting from that? So I think all those questions start to come in when we say, is it helpful? I would just say it can be helpful. It certainly can be helpful to hold certain truths and, and to perhaps take them, uh, to value them greatly, but also to hold them lightly, to know that there may be some other truth too. There may be something a little bit more open, a little bit more encompassing than this truth. So to, to value it greatly, and then to also hold it lightly. If we do that, then I certainly think it's valuable to have these mm. have certain truths. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I, I guess I was I was referring to the I mean the pol- polarization of society that's tearing tearing societies apart and things like that. You know. Uh, then I would say no. So that's a case I would say of not holding truth lightly enough. That's <laughs> that's taking yeah. a relative truth and just making it ironclad. And maybe not understanding why the other person's truth is opposite, right? Just like I said, uh, in my area, you can say consciousness fundamental, and there is no such thing as consciousness. And both people can actually be having the same experience. If you're not very careful about looking at what they mean, I think that's happening all the time. In the United States, there's Republican and Democrat, or there's you know there's political divides. Uh, there's there's truth and there's conspiracy theory. Uh, but I think if you if you look at these closely, you'll start to see that I think people are experiencing many more things in common, like, like fear is probably common to both, right? Um, feeling minimized is probably common, right? Wanting, wanting to know what's actually going on is probably common. But we tend to not focus on those, and we tend to focus on just the difference. And then those cases, I think having truth and fighting for that is definitely not helpful because it just shields us from other people's perspectives. Yeah. And it, and it gets so much more interesting and it's so much more joyful to live when you realize that there are so many pers- perspectives. I mean, it, it makes life yeah. richer, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, ha- would you would you describe yourself as, as an awakened person? I mean, I've, I've spoken, I've had people on the show, for instance, a, a guy called, an, an, another doctor actually, Angelo Dilulu. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I don't know. He's a doctor in Colorado and he's he's written a book called Awake, It's Your Turn. and his approach is very hands-on it's very it's very much like i mean he doesn't use very many very much spiritual language in his book he he wants to reach out to people who are i mean not necessarily comfortable with those kinds of terms but but are interested in like a little bit like you're doing as well just seeing reality for what it is and, and realizing that you have you have this capacity within you but but he i think he or i know that he describes himself as as a per- or his experience as being non-dual now he's lived his as mm-hmm. since 25 years back he he lives in in some kind of non-duality as far as i understand it which mm-hmm. means that because he said actually he said concretely to me in in one of our two conversations that when i asked about this he said yes i have i have a hard, very hard time separating you from me and that was that kind of blew my mind it's like wow he actually he actually experiences non-duality in, in real time like this, I mean, without sitting meditating or anything, just just in ordinary life. 
And uh, he said he says that it's sometimes it's kind of a funny situation when he almost walks into walls, which almost never happens, but it has happened. He said it has happened sometimes during the night when he wakes, walks to the bathroom and he forgets that there's a wall there and he walks into it. And uh, also that he forgets time. I mean, he he says that if, if I'm at home and I need to have a meeting in in uh, in uh, Two hours. I I need to set a set an alarm because to me one hour and f- six hours are, are the same. It does. It, there's no difference. So my question to you is: Do you, do you experience life or in your life a bit like that now in your your life as you live it today? Certainly different. Uh, I don't run into walls uh, for for the most <laughs> That's part. That's a good thing. Um, and um, I don't consider myself an awakened person. Um, you know, I, I think different people have different perspectives and there is a field of consciousness and there are different lenses on what's happening uh, that's the way it looks to me and yeah it's definitely the experience is quite different than before than at some point um yeah so is it is a non-duality that you are that you are talking about is, is that the same thing Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's talked about in in many different traditions, lenses. Yeah. It's the same, you know. The it's like idealism, Advaita, Advaita Vedanta, non-dualism. Yeah, I, I think it, there similar. are. They're definitely similar. Yes, yeah, similar is the right word. I think there are probably differences, um, but in terms of the big picture, we're essentially talking about something similar. Okay, so just to wrap this up a little bit, talk a little bit about the future. What? How do you how you see the future? And is if there is a human. Uh, and some kind of awakening happening in humanity that you can that you can sense and and in that case what is it going to look like you think for instance in healthcare so in healthcare it's what's already happening i mean you can look at the present and you can look at what the future is right so um you can see that integrative medicine what we call integrative medicine is at least in the united states is a pretty much every major medical center has a center for integrative medicine. Now, it's not fully understood, you know, the the idea behind it, the philosophy behind it is not fully understood. Sometimes it's 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 mocked by some people. All of this is happening. It's it's part of the process of change, right? But undoubtedly, you can't be a major medical center if you don't have some kind of center for integrative or complementary medicine. Which by the way, let me just mention is one of the other big truths that nobody talks about. Modern medicine is the true complementary medicine. Right, because it's it's meant as an adjunct. If you use modern medicine as the primary thing to help heal, you will have a public health crisis, which is what we have in the United States. Oh, that's a big one. And when you talk about conventional medicine, convention is that which has been done by convention. That's not a hundred or two hundred years like modern medicine. Millennia is conventional medicine. That's nutrition, movement, connection, and rest. And if you take pills and surgery away from most people, they will be okay. And so, therefore, it's complementary. If you take nutrition, movement, connection, and rest away from people, they won't be alive. No. That's so really good. I have to tell that to one of my friends who is uh, very much into complementary medicine and, and writes yeah. about those things. So, yeah. So That's people good. don't. So I say I'm an ER doctor. I'm trained bread and butter allopathy. I think what we do is great, but we can do great things in the ER. And by definition, I am a complementary medicine doctor, and so are all allopaths. Because what we do should not be taken as primary medicine. And if it does, it will cause problems. 
we solve a problem when it reaches a certain pitch that reaches above the physical level for the most part. And we can help that to heal. But the majority of what happens has to be nutrition, movement, connection, rest before, during, and after what we call disease. So that may be the biggest misconception today, the biggest truth that we don't talk about. Um, but what we're seeing is there is this movement as we talk about the future, as you said. There is this movement. People are talking about wellness. Yoga is an English word now, right? So we are seeing this shift happening. There will be more resistance. There is a reason why health revolution hasn't happened in the world yet. There is a reason why people don't know healing is possible at scale in the billions, because that will truly shift power. That will truly shift money. Hospitals will talk about wellness programs. They'll create some you know, nutrition, this, that, but they won't change the paradigm because they'll be out of business. You know, uh, people with a lot of money will often support philanthropy. They'll give money to this, they'll, but they won't change the tax structure. You know, mm. they won't change uh, the fact that the way we do economics creates some people who have no homes and creates some people who have ten homes, right? So we have to we have to look at the difference between where we are now in terms of change and where we have to go. Where we have to go, spirituality is not different from politics. And a lot of spiritual people don't like that. They think spirituality is different from politics, right? Uh, no, it's shift is going to require shift that shifts power, shifts money, shifts capacity, shifts knowledge. And those are huge things. Mm. So that's happening in healthcare now. It's going to happen at a bigger scale with health revolution. In terms of the bigger picture, we're, you can see around the world that there are many calamities happening. There are it, many it looks amazing a bit things. messy. Yeah, it looks messy. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's yeah. getting messy. There are a lot of amazing things happening too, but you won't see them on the news, right? They go together. I know, the yin and the yang or the spirituality right. and the science or however you want to say it, the positive and the negative in terms of science, right? They go together. A lot of beautiful, amazing things happening. And the other side of that is the, the darker things, the difficult things that have been in the subconscious have to surface. Right? It's almost like an abscess. The abscess comes to a head, it's painful, it erupts, and then it starts to heal. Right? And so that's where we're kind of in that eruption phase. We're getting into that eruption phase where there are going to be a lot of challenges and there are going to be a lot of opportunities, especially for those who start to accommodate a more expansive perspective. I think that's a Pretty hopeful and, and nice uh, note to, to end this conversation on. Anoop, where can people find out more about your work? Come to healthrevolution.org. Uh, as I said, for me in this lifetime, I'm an ER doctor. And so what I'm doing is focusing all this through the message of emergency medicine and health. And what I'm saying is, Yes, I diagnose heart attacks and strokes and life-threatening infections every day in the ER. But the real emergency at the root of all this is that we don't know who we are and we don't know what we are capable of. So come to healthrevolution.org. Start that process of walking back, of uncovering the layers one by one and see what we're talking about. Experience the course, the Health Jumpstart course, and let us bring healing to scale. Wonderful. And there, as I said, there will be a, a link in the description to the, the course that you were talking about. 
at a discount there. So it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Anup Kumar, for being a guest on the show. And good luck with your beautiful work. Thank you, Anders.